0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 13th, 2011.
0: Coming up, how the pine beetle infestation doesn't have to become such an epidemic, and what can we do about it now.
1: And sharks. The facts and myths... The ecosystem and evolution of these creatures, sometimes called demon fish.
0: Before we look at this week's news, you may have noticed that the beginning of our show sounded a little different today. Well, after long and careful deliberations, we finally picked a winner in our theme song contest, a track called Patient Truth by local composer Josh Cutler, who also goes by Techler. Congratulations to Josh, and thanks to the many talented musicians who entered the contest. We encourage our listeners to check out all the folks and their music. Links are still available at our website, howonearthradio.org slash contest now on to the news in science
1: la niña the recurring climatic phenomenon that triggered fire spawning drought and unprecedented heat in texas and other states is officially back it had been declared dead in june by scientists at the national oceanic and atmospheric administration but its impacts on weather patterns have lingered through the summer It has contributed to the devastating heat and aridity that has left tens of thousands of acres of Texas scorched by wildfires. Thousands of homes have been destroyed and at least four people have been killed. As La Nina itself faded a while ago, hopes rose that Texas, as well as New Mexico and other parts of the South and Southwest, might get some relief. But now, the climate prediction center is saying cooler than average surface temperatures have spread across the eastern half of the equatorial pacific ocean heralding la niña's return the cooling of pacific waters during la niña events tends to cause a shift in the storm track across the united states during fall winter and spring nudging it to the north This typically sweeps wetter-than-normal conditions into the Pacific Northwest and northern states, but the shift leaves the southern part of the country, from Arizona to Texas to Florida, with drier and often warmer conditions. With the return of La Nina, the climate center is predicting a higher-than-average chance of above-average temperatures across the midsection of the country, including here in Colorado, from September through November. Increased chances for the abnormally warm and dry conditions are also predicted for Texas well into the winter months. Some scientists believe La Nina's impacts this year have been exacerbated by human claws, climate change. Thanks to Tom Yusman for that report.
2: Precisely where greenhouse gases are produced and absorbed is a question that has vexed scientists for years. As of last Friday, they now have a clearer picture of the global distribution of these gases in the atmosphere. And they have HIPPO to thank. HIPPO stands for Hyper Pole-to-Pole Observations. It's the name given to a series of research flights that mapped global greenhouse gas concentrations from the Arctic to the Antarctic. The research team included scientists from the National Center for Atmospheric Research, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and Harvard University. The scientists tested for 80 different particles and greenhouse gases, including methane and carbon dioxide. Their data collection method improved upon that of existing ground stations, namely the global tall tower network operated by NOAA. The airborne method can pinpoint the concentrations of gases in higher definition. The jet's altitude ranged from 500 to 45,000 feet, which also let scientists figure out the vertical distribution of these gases. The new data have informed scientists more precisely about the sources and sinks of greenhouse gases. For example, black carbon particles emitted by diesel engines, smokestacks, and fires are much more prevalent and widely distributed than previously thought. The HIPPO project began in 2009. It was co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and NOAA. Last Friday marked the landing of the project's fifth and final mission. Results from the HIPPO project will provide baseline measurements of global greenhouse gases. They'll also allow scientists to improve atmospheric models for future predictions. I'm Brianna Drexler reporting for KGNU.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you live on the Front Range, or for that matter, just about anywhere else in Colorado, you don't have to go far to notice huge swaths of reddish-brown that have replaced green conifer forest. By now, many people are familiar with at least the devastating effects of the mountain pine beetle. But far fewer may understand just how these voracious insects actually make their living or that this epidemic and its causes and triggers are far more nuanced and controversial than meets the eye. In other words, humans are hardly just victims. Canadian journalist Andrew Nikiforek has written a newly published book about the beetles that have been gorging with impunity on pine and spruce forests from British Columbia down nearly to Mexico. It's called The Empire of the Beetle, How Human Folly and a Tiny Bug Are Killing North America's Great Forests. Previously... Nikiforik wrote a best-selling book called Tar Sands. He's on the line from Calgary to discuss the book and the future of the beetle and our treasured forests. So, Andrew, welcome to How on Earth.
3: Thank you, Susan.
1: So, tell us first, who the heck are these terminators anyway? Many people are familiar with beetles, but maybe not these up close and personal.
3: Well, there are about 7,000 species of bark beetles, and uh, that's more. Uh, bark beetles and there are mammals on the planet wow. and they've been around for hundreds of millions of years and they have very closely evolved with, with conifers and they have very distinct specific jobs to perform. These guys are the original forest engineers. I mean their job is to take out drought stressed trees, to take out wounded trees, to take out um, Um, well, in the case of Mountain Pine Beetle, to actually renew an aging lodgepole forest. That that's, that's what they're designed to do.
1: And that's something we often don't hear, at least from foresters, and certainly those living where views are now you know, what they certainly weren't before in devastated forests. So you're no, suggesting... No,
3: that's, that's not where, what we're hearing at all. Right. And, you know, and, and like, I, I own land in the West. I mean, I, I own land in Porcupine Hills in southern Alberta, which is much like your, your, your front-range country in, in Colorado.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I've lost a lot of trees, and in this case not directly to the mountain pine beetle, but to spruce budworm, which is also driven by by drought, and uh, and I've lost you know thirty thirty percent of the trees in my quarter section of the land, wow. so I'm quite familiar with with the loss of trees and how people feel about that. Yet at the same time, you also have to understand that I mean there is a role for insects and fire in the forest, and when you suppress them and keep them out. Then you're going to have an enormous explosion, which we really have had right across the West.
1: So, if also the forests were left, here. if the forests were left to their own devices, and we didn't have sort of modern fire management, do you think there'd be a much more diverse and less uh, devastated forest system?
3: I don't think the explosion would have been as extreme as it was in the last 20 years. Mm. Uh, but I mean, but there were a lot of factors that contributed to it. I mean, number one, certainly fire suppression has played a role in creating uh, a more uniform landscape in the sense that we have, you know, aging lodge poles, aging ponderosa pine, aging pinyon trees, um, uh, much like aging bo- baby boomers uh, <laughs> all throughout the landscape. In yes, sort of I understand. One, you know, right? And, uh, so that what that's one issue, and then we have climate change, which is a real trigger here where you're really ramping up um, not so much summer temperatures but winter temperatures and allowing these guys um, phenomenal opportunities to, to for for their for, for brute survival
1: so historically uh, a
3: good would... a good, a good winter will kill eighty percent you know um, right. warm winters and you've got you've got eighty percent of those guys on the landscape that that's that's a big change
1: well, versus now. They're all pretty much surviving and able to reproduce that much faster.
3: Yep, in some cases they can reproduce twice, uh, depending on the species. But you know, up in, when, when when this whole thing really exploded in Alaska back in the 19, late 1980s, 1990s, I mean, it, it was a kind of unheard of that the uh, spruce beetle would be be doing this. And then they, then they actually managed to reproduce twice in a summer, and so you had you know you had two generations of beetles on the landscape. Um, That was absolutely phenomenal. And I mean, the amount of biomass in the air, and I think people have to understand, they don't really quite understand what what the volume of insect activity in Alaska alone amounted over a 10-year period. Uh, I mean, just imagine this. I mean, looking up in the sky and seeing 3,500 killer whales flying through the sky. (laughs) <laughs> or encountering you know a wolf pack that's you know five hundred thousand members strong
1: that sounds a little more um graphic than the locust analogy
3: <laughs> yeah well I mean I, 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 just people just have difficulty understanding sort of you know the scale of what actually transpired, and you know this is this really is a history making event that's taken place in the west when you when you lose thirty billion trees over a twenty year period i mean that's that's big news. Wow. And um, so
1: you're you're not big Canadian
3: Easterners, but it is to, 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 to you know folks that live in the West and love the
1: West, right? And here we are loving the West. Yeah. So you're Canadian. Um, you live up there. Could you give a sense, as you describe in the book, of the whole trajectory of this devastation? I mean, starting not just in the 1980s, but even way back in the 1700s, right?
3: Well. Yeah, I don't know if we want to go back to the whole European experience, but uh, okay, let's start that. I mean, I mean, the bark beetles became a big issue in Europe in the 18th century. And they did because European peasants had been, at, at that point, had, had just mowed down uh, much of uh, Europe's hardwood forests to create agricultural land. And, um, and to replace all of those hardwoods, uh, so called scientific foresters in, in Germany started planting scotch pine and, and, and spruce everywhere. So then you had these, these, these monocultures appearing on the landscape such that they, they attracted bark beetles in, in numbers that nobody had ever seen before in Europe and that were absolutely devastating because they, the trees were still dependent upon at that point for, as a really important uh, heating sources you know, for fuel. Right. So peasant communities were terrified when these beetle epidemics would, would come and just knock out these, these man-made uh, plantations. And and that's the whole idea started there and then that bark beetles are bad and that we must stamp them out. And uh, the U.S. Forestry Service has you know gone to great lengths at trying just about any means to kill bark beetles. I mean, they kind of took all of this German thinking and applied it to our landscape in the West.
1: What have been some of the most central, and then we'll get to some of the most oh, and least effective?
3: I mean, you name it, we've tried it. So, I mean, with a thinning forests, uh uh felon burn, uh we've tried arsenic, we've tried just about every pesticide you can imagine. Um we've tried electrocution, we've tried drowning trees. <laughs> wait, explain the electrocution trees. Um uh,
1: wait how does how does the electrocution work? Uh well
3: I mean they actually tried to I mean they'd hook up uh, electrodes to trees and, and see if they could uh um uh, electrocute the beetles under the, the bark. I mean they'd even they'd even wet down the tree a little bit. And you know, and so they they found that that wherever they they put the electrodes, some of the beetles around them died. But but you know, I mean, a tree is a pretty poor conductor, right? So you're not. Gonna, it wasn't terribly effective. <laughs> um, we've tried to uh, you know, goop, which is a form of napalm, um, and uh, um, and well, one of the most curious experiments was actually. Uh, we, in, in Canada, we've tried uh, explosive charges. So we've putting, C, t- tying C2 to a tree, and and then just blowing the bark off, and then recording the number of beetles dead as a, as a consequence. <laughs> and as, that didn't work. That wasn't very effective. On that note, on that note about, trees,
1: that note about how many about how, how many beetles per tree could be.
3: Oh, I, I mean, it, it was inconsequential at the end of it. I mean, they, they, you know, they said that. Well, this is probably not a good idea. I mean, that was the conclusion of a scientific experiment. This was a scientific experiment, and uh, one of the things that really got them too was that they noticed a lot of the beetles that they thought had been killed by the explosion, you know, they came back to life a couple of hours later. They would, you know, they just uh, suffered rather rude concussions. So, I mean, these are extraordinary creatures, and. Um, and when you have them in in, in a mass epidemic form, it, it it is like a hurricane or an avalanche or a flood. There, there's precious little you can really do to to change the outcome. It's you know a lot of entomologists uh, that I talk to in the West. You know folks like Jesse Logan in 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 uh, an immigrant Montana used to be with the Forest Service. And, you know, one of the foremost beetle guys in in, in the U.S. West said, you know, like trying to stop a beetle epidemic would be like trying to stop uh, a hurricane like Katrina by, by you know, putting fans all along the coast of Louisiana. <laughs> You're not going to do it.
1: So at this point, is it best to just let them gorge as they will and eventually they'll move on or just simply? <laughs>
3: well, they'll, they'll essentially eat themselves out of house and home. Um, mm-hmm. They will take out all the mature trees and in, in a really severe epidemic, I mean, they start taking out... Uh, trees the size of baseball bats. In British Columbia, we even had them attacking spruce trees, and nobody had ever seen that before—a uh, mountain pine beetles attacking spruce trees. Um, and and we've had in in Canada, we've had all the same debates that you've had in Colorado. You know, should we should we clear cut these dead forests? Should we should we burn them? Um, should we uh, put roads in there and thin the trees? You know, every debate that you've had in Colorado, we've had in Canada. And, uh, and what government and, uh, and industry and also uh, a lot of the science community don't want to admit that, you know, what maybe the outcome w- would actually have been much better had we not done anything. In other words, I mean, what we did in British Columbia where we had 25 million acres affected, right? You've had 4 million acres in, in Colorado. Right. We've had 25 million acres <laughs> affected in the interior of the, uh, of the province. And so we had these massive 100,000-acre, 125,000-acre clear cuts uh, that you can see from outer space that completely changed the hydrology in the watersheds. Important salmon fisheries have been affected. We massacred our roads with the volume of logging trucks. We we high-graded the resource. I mean, loggers went in there. Instead of going after pine, they went after spruce or Douglas fir or anything that commanded a higher price in the market. So, you know, we just had an orgy of bad decision-making and an orgy of, uh, of, uh, of bad economics.
1: Well, at that point, I'm going to need to um, cut this off, but I would love to have you continue. So for those who want to learn more, you can certainly pick up The Empire of the Beetle, How Human Folly and a Tiny Bug are Killing North America's Great Forests" by author, who we just had on the show, Andrew Nicky Fork, journalist and author of this new book. And for those who would like a copy... If you call in, the first to call in right after the show will receive a copy of Andrew's book for a pledge of at least $50 to KGNU. Call 303 449 4885. That's 303 449 4885 to learn lots more about this epidemic. Thank you so much for coming to the show, Andrew.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Susan.
0: You're listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Sharks have a special place in the human psyche. Perhaps it's a combination of the mystery of the depths of the ocean and natural fear and awe of powerful beasts that can kill humans with a single bite. But these predators are also key players in the ocean's ecosystem. The science and legends of sharks are the subject of a new book called Demon Fish Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks by Juliet Eilprin, the environmental science and policy reporter for The Washington Post. I spoke with Juliet when she was visiting Boulder last week. We start with her discussing what motivated her to write a book about sharks.
4: I really like writing about the ocean. It's an area which is relatively uncharted, so there's some really interesting scientific discoveries that are happening even now. And it's a little less polarized than some of the other topics I cover, like climate change. So I was really just looking at an interesting subject through which I could explore the ocean, and I decided sharks would be an excellent way to do that.
0: What were some of the surprises or the challenges you had in researching and writing the book?
4: One challenge I felt like I had was how I was going to wrap together so many different threads that I think are part of shark stories. So how could I bring together the huge cultural role they play across time and space and, and geography? And then how do I put that together with the science that we're learning about them what we're understanding to be their threats and what's happening in the policy world, and really put that together in a coherent way, so I think that was that was one challenge and then certainly just accumulating all the information I needed to get to be able to really understand sharks and then relate that to a general interest audience was another challenge
0: to research this book, you really traveled all over to find out what the different attitudes of different cultures and things were like. What were some of the, say, similarities, the common threads that you found among some of the different cultures?
4: I think part of it would depend on which cultures you're talking about. So, for example, with island cultures, one thing that I discovered is that they had a more nuanced view of sharks. And you could see this again, whether you were talking about Hawaii or Papua New Guinea or some other places, that what was interesting is that they didn't think of them as warm and cuddly creatures but at the (laughs) same time they didn't see them as as evil as the way that often the west viewed them and in fact they definitely i guess one thing i would say applies to everywhere is that people recognize the power that sharks had and if anything they exaggerate the power that Mm. sharks possess but Again, when, when you saw the cultures that interacted the most closely with sharks, they often thought that sharks could use this power for good and for ill, whereas we tend to have this preconceived notion that they're out to get us and that they only act in negative ways.
0: How often do those shark attacks actually happen?
4: Well, it, ver- it varies from year to year, but what you're really talking about is roughly, there's something like between 60 and 80 attacks each year against humans, and then a tiny fraction are lethal. But what's interesting is that so annually for the past decade or two it's averaged about five a year. Hmm. This year so far we've had 10 lethal attacks so that's a really unusually high number of lethal strikes.
0: Although it's small number statistics so you'll get a little spike like that every now and then.
4: Absolutely and again when you put it relative to a number of things for example there are more than 30 people who died of a heat wave just in the United States this summer so and certainly if you tally whether it's beast things or fireworks each year you know these are the kinds of incidents that actually far outnumber the number of lethal shark strikes worldwide.
0: What do sharks bring to an ecosystem? What is their key role in an ecosystem that's so important about them?
4: They're among the top predators in the sea. And as such, they play an incredibly critical role because they keep mid-level predators in check. Sometimes they, you know, consume the, the rays or other animals that are just right below them on the on the food chain this in turn makes sure that you have the for example herbivore fish mm. on the bottom that can help keep coral reefs healthy because they eat the algae that might grow on them so one of the interesting things is scientists are still trying to quantify with precision the role that sharks play but there's no question that they they play an important role and one of the things that I like is that sometimes their role is to instill fear in other animals so it's not even that they would huh. eat them per se but some animals might be afraid of sharks and therefore for example won't overeat the seagrass in a particular area so I love that that they can even engage in psychological warfare, not just literal warfare, with, right. with the, other animals.
0: That that's a very interesting position. It's it's some type of oceanic police or something. I don't right. know what. Exactly. You say that there's actually a some connection between humans and sharks. What exactly is that?
4: There are a few different connections. One of the most intriguing ones that we're just discovering is the evolutionary connection. So, for example, the muscles that we use to chew and to talk and the bones in our inner ear come from sharks. There's been the sequencing of the genome of the elephant shark, which shows some overlap with humans. And so, you know, I think some people have a hard time getting their mind around the fact that we might be related to primates, but the idea that we (laughs) might be related to sharks is pretty is pretty interesting and, and oh, i like shocking.
0: that makes me wonder why i'm not a better swimmer
4: exactly <laughs> so you know i think that that's one of the interesting ways that, that there are abstract ways that we're connected to sharks through you know why we depend on the ocean and things but and then there are these ancient ways and then these these modern ways because they're they're part of how we understand the world
0: well thank you very much Juliet, for spending the time to talk with us about your book
4: thank you Joel. it's been a pleasure
0: That was Juliet Eilprin talking about her book, Demon Fish, Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. It's available at the Boulder Bookstore and other local bookstores or through her webpage, demonfishbook.com. You can get the full extended version of the interview with Juliet Eilprin on our webpage at howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show producer was also Susan Moran. Our engineer was Joel Parker, and additional contributions by Tom Yulsman and Brianna Draxler. Josh Cutler wrote our theme music. Additional music from Mulatu Estatki and the Heliocentrics.
1: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our show are available... There and through iTunes. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.
0: And I'm Joel Parker.